Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. You're listening to episode 122, and tonight we are covering the top five Elmore Leonard adaptations. Uh, I feel like we've had this as a possible episode for like maybe almost like the entire run of this podcast. It feels like. And I think I believe it was definitely in the first batch of things we talked about. <laughs> sitting outside of Dunkin' Donuts, we were discussing like what could be possible topics. So, yeah, so a long time coming. Um, three years later, <laughs> only because I, I think you felt like I would never want to talk about Kid Shorty. Oh, and not not to spoil things. That's a that's good point. It's limited. It's a limited selection, really, right? Um, yeah, there's maybe maybe a couple other movies that I would have considered. Um, although I honestly like I think this five is, is the right five, so yeah. Um yeah, the only thing that, uh, off this list that I just recently had watched because I uh, avoided it for years when I heard reviews was uh Kill Shot. And I did watch Kill Shot uh a couple weeks ago when I was watching the rest of these movies, and I was pleasantly surprised by that movie. It was um, it's one of my favorite books of his, and I, I was really pleasantly surprised. The direction was fine; it left something to be desired. But the uh, performances uh, by Mickey Rourke and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Tom Jane and um, were all like you know pretty much like spot on um, in that movie. Especially Mickey Rourke um, is uh, fucking amazing in that movie uh, as, as that character. But um, yeah. and then. Um, I'm trying to think of like what else like there. So there's um, Ombre, right? I don't. Yeah, I don't really know Ombre. Yeah, I realize that like I, I think like I've seen like Fifty Two Pickup and Stick, and both of those are fine. Um, and Valdez is coming, which I actually like, um, because it's kind of very much like a Django esque, um, like anti Western kind of to me, but um. Again, like I think that the the five that are on this list are, um, you know, I think they're they're, they're the right choices. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen the? Did you? I mean, you're. I'm, I know I've given you a number of things that aren't as popular as read, but you've read a lot of his books, right? Mm, yeah, like maybe a dozen. I guess yeah. I don't know. Because um, you and Chuck for a while were like. Both like beating me, Leonard stuff to read, and I had read um, a few things on my own before, mm-hmm. um, mostly because it gets shorty, honestly. So, sure. yeah, I mean, I, I that's how I think I started reading Leonard as a teenager. Probably, I know I had read an interview with Tarantino when like Pulp Fiction after Pulp Fiction had come out and. I was obsessed with Tarantino, but um, I had read an interview of him talking about wanting to adapt Elmore Leonard and how influential Leonard was like to him. So that's when I heard his name, and then I saw Get Shorty was coming out like the following year, and um, yeah, that's when I started reading Elmore Leonard like all the time. And <clears throat> um, I'm still missing like westerns. I think I've read every crime novel now, but I I miss a lot of the westerns just because. It's not my favorite genre in the world, westerns. But um, is Pagan Babies the one that takes place in Africa? It is. Yep. 
Yeah, so I read that and Cubalibre and Get Shorty. And then you guys had me read um Kill Shot, Maximum Bob, Rum Punch, Pronto, Out of Sight. Um City Primeval. Yeah, City Primeval. Um that actually might be it. I think um, that's it. I think that's all I've And you, you never saw the H uh, not HBO Showtime version of Pronto, did you? With uh Peter Falk um as the Harry Arno character and uh James LaGrosa's Raylan. No. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's not good. It's not good. There, I remember I have this really vague recollection of maybe it's just be cool that I'm thinking of. Mm. I mean, because I'm not. I mean that 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 movie is um no. That movie's rough. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. I have this really vague recollection of a letter adaptation I saw. Maybe it was The Big Bounce. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or Freaky Deaky. It was, it was one of those that, like, just completely, I think, missed, like, the the tone and the whatever, like, inherent coolness that comes with, like, Leonard, like, when you're reading him. Yeah. Now, do yeah, yeah, and I, I guess we'll probably talk about it with these movies. Honestly, is like you know why they're good at adaptations of Leonard. Um, so I guess that's something we don't have to talk about right now. I mean, um, so I'll say this: like because I was thinking about this today when I was kind of mentally not really preparing for the podcast, but just kind of like reviewing the movies in my mind. Um, I think it's a testament to him as really like a just. Not, not not even as a novelist, but as a storyteller, that you've got five movies that are all pretty dissimilar in a lot of ways that still, like, have really great beats and really good pacing and, like, good ideas and dialogue. Like, all of them, I think, like, really hit the mark. And it's just because, like, I think he's really good at telling stories in general. He's just, he's good at setting scenes and building characters and like creating yeah. these worlds that are like believable but still like with sort of larger than life characters that you can still kind of relate to i mean it's just um I yeah know, it's I, I mean he he gets called by a lot of like modern novelists and by modern i mean the past like 50 years as uh, that they'll say that he's like underrated and he's like one of like the greatest american writers of the past you know of his generation um and just nobody really recognized it because he was such a genre writer in terms of westerns and um crime but crime novels but um there's a lot of big names if you go like look at like you know the people that have like talked about it that like say that he there's nobody better in terms of writing dialogue or creating character a lot of times no more leonard yeah i i kind of equate him um with one of my other like favorite like modern writers in graham green like mm-hmm. i think very similar in terms of mm-hmm their ability to craft like like basically like a self-contained narrative that still references like their other works so you kind of get the sort of feeling of a shared world but you don't have to know anything else to appreciate like an individual novel sure um, just the way that both of them were able to capture like the speech of of people really where the dialogue is still really like crisp and um like cool at times, but it doesn't feel like overwrought and sure like overdone. 
Yeah, absolutely. What, 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 what we've always talked about in a lot of ways with Gilmore Girls, where, like, dialogue is brilliant, but, like, who's talking about that in real life, you know? Sure. Whereas, like, you watch something like Justified, and I know that, you know, we'll probably talk about that towards the end, but, um, you know, based on his characters and his stories, and it's like, or anything, like, the, the movies we're going to talk about, where it's like, there's lines that are, like, just so perfect for the situation but don't seem outside the realm of possibility that someone would just say that like off the cuff. No, I, uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree. 100%. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's really, um, as a writer is really underrated. And, um, I, th- I also find it fascinating that like he gets a start in genre and Westerns, but that, that, that spirit never really leaves him. Like, even in his crime novels and his crime stories, like, there's still that kind of vague wisp of the Western behind all of it. And, I mean, if nobody's seen a lot of Elmore Leonard movies, I mean, just if you've seen Justified, it's, like, it's it's the most obvious one to probably point to and it's right. kind of seeing the Western still there. I mean, I think that we can look at pretty much every single one of these movies and you can find elements of like the classroom classic western ideals mm-hmm. um yeah maybe in character motivation or you know just the way that scenarios are built up and um yeah he's he's definitely a guy that appreciates the um i don't know like the the wayward man or the guy who has laws but is still like in some ways heroic mm-hmm. yeah and that, and that's the thing is like you know it's not a not too much of a popular topic nowadays and i can understand that but it's like it's like he's he's very intent on like you know for his protagonist a lot of times is what makes a man a man i think um what choices you know what traits those kind of things make make a man heroic um and yeah um it's yeah it's certainly interesting um yeah even even some of the anti-hero kind of characters um you know still have codes and all that kind of stuff so um okay so let's go ahead and jump in um number five on your list is 1974's mr majestic is directed by richard fleischer stars charles bronson al Lettieri, linda crystal lee Percival. uh it has a 79 percent from critics and a 67 percent from audiences Want to tell us a little about the movie and uh, why you have it on this list? Um, so Bronson plays uh, the titular uh, Mr. Majestic, um, who is a uh, seemingly mild man. Well, not even seemingly mild man, because pretty early on, he's just kind of a badass. But um, he's a melon farmer. Um, chief character motivation in the movie is to farm his melon. Because um, he got to farm the melons before they go bad so he can sell them. Because that's how it makes his living is by mm-hmm. farming melons. Um, he's very open-minded, um, very staunchly like pro-immigrant, and stands up for um, the rights of uh, migrant workers uh, early on. Like you see him stand up to a um, racist gas yeah, station attendant, I guess, who won't let um, these migrant workers use the bathroom. Um, draws the eye of Nancy Chavez, who is a uh, sort of like union leader for the migrant workers and like rights activists. Um, so him and his best friend who lives on his farm, they gather up all these workers and they're going to go farm the melons. 
Um, and uh, what's his name? Coslo, I think, or something like that. Um, this uh, kind of like dandy tough pick is there with um, his his winos that he assembled to farm Majestic's melons. Um, and wants to like kind of undercut the price that Majestic pays on his own, but um, Majestic beats him up and runs him off. Um, and shortly thereafter is arrested for doing that. Um, which I don't know, like how true that rings. That I guess you could just go out and arrest some dude for somebody else saying like, "Oh yeah, that happened." Um, but that's what happens. So while Majestic is in jail, he kind of runs afoul of um, Frank Randa, who's a mob hitman. Um, Majestic uses a failed attempt to break Randa free um, by a bevy of, I guess, like mob flunkies to steal the prison bus they're on and escape to his uh, mountain cabin retreat where he keeps Randa captive and has the idea that he's going to kind of play the law against um, Randa himself, who's offering him a reward to let him go. Um, that doesn't work. Randy gets free. Um, and it culminates with, well, number one, his melons getting destroyed. Yes. Um, in a, I guess, juicy, juicy shootout, maybe. <laughs> um, and then him getting his revenge on Randa and his cronies. Um, it's interesting because this is like really kind of just typical Bronson in a lot of ways. Um, quiet, you know, man who has a past that wants to be left alone and just live a simple life that gets drawn into acts of violence as, you know, retribution for people who don't understand that he's <clears throat> whatever, like a latent badass. Um, it's revealed, and actually, this is one of my favorite parts of this movie, because they do this just through, like, simple dialogue and, like, subtle references that... um Majestic was a Vietnam vet who escaped from um, a prisoner of war camp um, and took out, like, basically a whole platoon of, well, like, like four or six, like, of his captors and, like, rescued all these people and was awarded a silver star. And, um, I mean, it's a really, it's, it's weird because it's an incredibly ridiculous premise. I mean, everything that Majestic does is done with the idea that he needs to save these melons. Like, gotta, I, he's got to get them melons. Like, you got to gotta right. farm them melons. Because right. that's all that matters. And it's like, hey, hey, you might go to jail. Like, well, can't you just give me a few days to farm my melons and then you can send me to jail? Right. Right. Or like, hey, this like super dangerous mob hitman is out to kill you. And he's like, cool. Can you let me go farm my melons before I die? Because I got to farm these melons. Uh -huh. Um, I so when I was watching this movie, this is the last one of these movies that I watched, and I watched it last night, maybe I guess. Um, my question to you was like, so Frank Randa is a mob hit, and he's been accused of murdering someone, but the evidence is kind of flimsy, and um, he really could have just like let himself be taken, whatever, and. I mean, I guess, like, they say that it was one of the police officers that was a witness that gets killed during the attempted breakout, but couldn't they have killed that guy some other time and it still would have played out the same way? Like, sure. he could have just gone to jail for, like, a week and he would have been fine. 
But instead, all this nonsense happens. And it's a really cool scene. It's kind of like um, like low-rent Southern Heat in a lot of ways, because they have this shootout in the street where they're like behind cars and the cops and the flunkies are shooting at each other. But I mean, like, Randa's whole thing is like, look, I just want to get away. Like, just uncuff me. I'm not going to do anything to you. I mean, like, just let me go. And, like, the whole time, his whole motivation is, like, first of all, to get away. And then after Majestic, like, betrays him, it's not going to kill this fucking melon farmer. And he's surrounded by idiots, like, at every turn. All he wants to do is kill this melon farmer. And every, he's, it's an, it's a really funny performance. And I, I think it's, I think it's on, it's purposefully funny at times in some ways, in, like, a kind of ironic way. Because the dude's just like, no. Like, we need to go kill this melon farmer, you idiot. Like, all I need you to do is tell me where this melon farmer is. And everybody around him is just adult. Yes. And he's consistently, like, getting foiled by the idiocy of other people. And his own, like, overwhelming ego where he doesn't realize that he can get beat. Um, which is also one of the better parts of the movie, when at the end of the movie, he realizes that his flunkies are gone, his girlfriend's gone, he sacrifices, like, his best friend or right-hand man or whatever just to try and, like, draw Majestic out, because Majestic has him, like, it's it's kind of like Commando in a lot of ways, where Majestic just has him trapped in this house and he's sort of coming in to get him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Randall's just, like, dumbfounded, like, man, like, this guy's just gonna come kill me, isn't he? <laughs> what? what? Like, I don't all I wanted to do was kill this melon farmer right now. The melon farmer is going to kill me. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and eventually gets some come up and some dies. But um, I really enjoyed it. I thought um, I haven't seen this movie in, I don't know, maybe since the 90s sometime. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I read about this. I feel like Tarantino talked about this movie at some point. Maybe before... Before Jackie Brown, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen uh-huh. it. Um, and I really enjoyed it this time. I thought it was a very, it's nothing like spectacular or like mind-blowing or revolutionary, but it's solid performances with really good action sequences and a good script. Good car and, chase, too. Yeah, like a really great car chase midway through the movie. And it takes a ridiculous premise and it makes it believable enough where you care about the characters. And it pays it off pretty well in the end, you know, and yeah um i think it's crazy so i read that bronson i realized i don't really know much about charles bronson after watching this movie so i read mm-hmm. a lot about him last night did you know that bronson was offered the role of superman at, or no bronson petitioned to win the role of superman and was turned down because they felt that he was too um rough looking yeah i can see that i didn't know that though no that's interesting and then he um he turned down the part of the man with no name twice, hmm. both for um, a few dollars more and a fistful of dollars, and then had to turn down the part of either Tuco or Angel Eyes because he was offered both um, because he was filming Dirty Dozen, so he couldn't hmm. do it, and finally was able to wake up with Leone to do um, Once Upon a Time in the West, right? Um, which also was pretty cool, I think. But yeah. for being a guy who really is one of the... Um, like next to maybe Clint Eastwood, like the archetypical tough man of the 1970s. Like it's it's cool to watch him in a movie that's good and isn't just like some terrible whatever paid by numbers action movie. And I really enjoyed it. Like I thought it was I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. It, it moved along at just like a steady clip the entire time. And um, you mentioned this to me, and I was thinking the same thing when I watched it, um, is that I don't know where they got this copy from, but it looks amazing. Um, it's, a, it, it's a really nice looking movie. And some of the things that I really liked, it's just for so minor, is like when you get I just miss the look of the seventies when I watched this movie yeah. and it's like, I, I, I miss that kind of, even though it looked beautiful, like, and it was like kind of bright and everything. It's like, I miss that graininess. I miss like, you know, real world artifacts being behind people. Like where it's like, it's obvious they just found a location where this fucking phone was and just whatever was there was there. And right. it's just like these artifacts of the time. And, you know, because and it made it look real and it makes it feel real as opposed to everything being very purposely stylized in the background of whatever's going to be displayed and um no i i really like that and the only other thing i thought about this movie as i was watching it was you know the singular focus of the, of the melons is, is hilarious but um like the the kind of stoic nature of the Bronson character, which was a staple of Bronson's acting sure. a lot of times anyway, but it, it, it certainly, I, it's been a long time since I read this book and it's been a long time since I've seen this movie, but um, I mean, it fits the character. And, but you think about the stoic nature of some of the characters he writes sometimes, because how far away is, you know, um, um, majestic from, um, uh, Max Cherry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, in, in terms of, like, just that kind of, like, everyday, the, the workman-like, you know, focus and the, the stoic nature and, like, you know, the kind of, you know, not really showing any emotion on his face, you know, except for maybe a little smirk or something at some point. Like, um, it's it's a really good representation of one of his kind of archetypes, I think, um, the way Bronson yeah. plays this character. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, Always kind of like a half a smile, but he's very much like workmanlike and businesslike. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. Like, oh um, my God, why won't anyone let me farm these melons? <laughs> right. I mean, like, seriously, if you take this script and just like tweak the way it's filmed a little bit, it's basically like that scene in the jerk with the cans. Like, <laughs> why, is, why, why is this guy hate these cans? <laughs> like, why does right. everybody hate my melons? Like, right. my melons. Yeah. Um, and just the ridiculousness of like this like almost like torture porn scene of shooting the fucking watermelons is is hilarious. And I, I think that is that subtle because this is a weird story for Leonard. Yeah. It really is. Like this is like outside uh, outside the norm it's on the fringes of like leonard's works like in terms of story like you know, what what's what his norms are sure. and um but like it's set in colorado which is fucking weird like yeah. i mean like Cause, never because there's a hilarious thing is that rand is like oh these are these melons fucking kill these melons and his his cronies are like um you want us to shoot him he's like yeah <laughs> shoot these melons and then they're they're all kind of hesitant, but then they all get into it. Like they're all like kind of laughing, like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and and they don't even kill all the melons. 
because he still gets a whole truckload of melons. Yeah. And he sacrifices his friend to try and deliver to the fucking right. train station or whatever. They broke right. your legs. They <laughs> shot my melons. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, fun movie to watch. Um, really fun seventies movie, fun, fun artifact, fun Bronson movie. I'm not I don't think I'm the I like some Bronson's westerns, but like his action movies, it's like yeah, okay. Like I'm fine with them. But I thought this was really fun. Most times we'll say melons in a podcast unless we start doing some weird pornography. <laughs> All right. So number four on your list is 2007's 310 to Yuma, uh, the uh, remake of, I think, what was that, 69, I think, uh, movie. Uh, it is directed by James Mangold. It stars Russell Crowe, Christian Bale, Logan Lerman, Dallas Roberts, Ben Foster, and Peter Fonda. It has an 89% from critics and an 86% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us uh, a little bit about this movie and uh, why you have on the list? Um, so to distill the the plot down, I guess because otherwise yeah. it take forever. To sure. Um, Christian Bale plays a um, rancher who was injured during the Civil War, where he lost a foot and now has a prosthetic. Um, not really respected by his eldest son, who kind of views him as a weakling. Um, he owes money to the local, I don't know, like loan shark kind of guy, um, who has taken to burning his farm, um, to drive him off the property so they can let the railroad come through. So kind of a similar story in a lot of ways to Once Upon a Time in the West, um, in that respect. Um, well, that one aspect of that story. Um, they need to go to town to try and confront this loan shark on the way. They witness Russell Crowe's gang who's robbing a stagecoach and really fucking brilliant action scene um, of like attacking the stagecoach and sort of taking it down where there's a shipment of money. Um, they end up overtaking the stagecoach, stealing the money. Um, they realize that uh, Bale has seen them do it. Um, so they take his horses and leave him, um, basically him and his sons to live but take his horses away so he can't go and tell anybody. Um, Bale ends up saving a Pinkerton, played by Peter Fonda, um, that is shown through the opening sequence as like a pretty intimate knowledge of um, uh, Russell Crowe's character. Um, this ends up bringing them all back to town together, uh, where Crowe gets captured because of his insistence on having sex with this woman that he knew like previously. Um, and he's shown to both be like, good-hearted and somewhat noble, almost like Robin Hood, but also like vainly egotistical in a lot of ways and like so sure of his own prowess that he feels like he can't be touched. Um, so he gets taken captive and it's worked out that Christian Bale, for money, um, for a $200 bounty, like take him along with um, the henchman of the loan shark, uh, the Pinkerton, and the man who's... Um, like the in charge of the railroad money, which is what they were stealing from, are going to take them across the desert to Yuma to catch the 310 train. Where, or I'm sorry, take them to uh, not in, desolation, contention, contention, which is a town where there's a train station. Brilliant. They're going to put them on the 310, 310 train to Yuma prison, um, where Russell Crowe will be um, in, uh, in prison for his crime or hung um, for his crime. Um, so. That's the opening, like, that's the setup of the story. 
And then there's this really like brilliant, like tense, well, what would you say, like 30 minute sequence where they're moving across the desert at night in order to make sure they get to um, their destination in time. Mm-hmm. Um, where Crow overpowers them once and then is captured again and then sort of ha- is given his freedom to help fight off these Apaches that are attacking him um, and escapes and then is captured again and it's just this thing where slowly um, maybe not respect but there's like a begrudging admiration between him and uh, Christian Bale's character Um they finally get to contention. Uh, Russell Crowe's gang comes to town to break them free. They offer, is it $1,000 or $250 to each person? Yeah. Um, whoever helps them kill the Christian Bale character and free uh, Russell Crowe. Um, in the end, Crowe realizes that the reason that Bale is sort of doing what he's doing is not just for the money, but also to gain the respect of his son. Um, so. Uh, Russell Crowe starts to help Bale, kind of get him to the train, because I think, you know, I mean, he knows that he can escape anyway. Um, and the movie ends on a really kind of like down note where uh, Bale is shot, um, dying, um, because Crowe has tried to stop his, his gang from killing, um, Christian Bale, but they kill him anyway. And Russell Crowe just like in kind of like one fell swoop just like kills every single member of his gang, like this gang of supposed like, you know, kind of like bad men, like lawless men, dangerous like gunslingers and just like mows them all down and then willingly gets on the train so that Christian Bale sacrifices in a vein and he's the one that brought him in and they can kind of bring his son that measure of um measure of respect for his father. So um really brilliant performances like across the board, I think. Um I mean, the two principles that Christian Bale is just kind of Christian Bale, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, it's weird because for somebody that I think was considered maybe one of the best actors of our generation, um, you sort of find that Christian Bale just kind of plays himself a lot or he's playing like the same dude. Um, as opposed yeah. to like there being a whole lot of nuance. I mean, he's just kind of a flat character here. Um not to say that it's a bad performance, but it's really overshadowed a lot by a brilliant performance by Russell Crowe. Yeah. Um, and then really like fantastic supporting performances. Uh, the guy that played Kimi on Lost. Um, <laughs> I, I knew you were going to get your boy Kevin Durant in there. Right, right. That's my man. Uh, um, small but pretty effective performances. The Thug. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Fonda, another like kind of short but really like memorable performance as Pinkerton. Um, Alan Tudyk does a really great performance as uh, um, the town doctor that's brought along to make sure that like nothing happens to Crow. Um, even the kid that plays um, Bale's son, I can't remember that young. Yeah, Logan Lerman. Mm-hmm. Um, just a really great like memorable performance. Um, it really captures the feeling of like a classic Western while still feeling modern in the same way that I think that um, stuff that we like, like Bone Tomahawk and the True Grit remake, um, both are really effective at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just a really solid, well-acted movie. Um, I think the only thing where it sort of falls short a little bit is 
I don't know how much they sell Crow's reason for kind of flipping and sort of helping bail out. Um, it kind of just, it doesn't just happen because it's built up too slowly over the course of a few scenes, but it really does feel like kind of like, hey, I'm going to escape and kill you. Ah, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and like help you get me to this train because I can appreciate your need to have your son's respect. And then I wish that that was built up like just a little more, like maybe a couple more scenes and I would be happy. Yeah, I can see that. It's not a, it's certainly not made in any way apparent what's going on internally with the, um, uh, with the Ben Wade character at all. Like, um, of, well, it's, 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 they say it early in the movie, right? Not early, in the movie, but during the time where he's kidnapped, where it's discussing his relationship with his father that kind of like brings out, yeah, like the, like the anger in him, sort of. And that's what Durant, Durant's character, like, is kind of taunting him about, like, his mother and, uh-huh. um, whatever, like, basically, like, using that as a way to, like, get a rise out of him. And that's when we, like snaps and just murders the shit out of him. Yeah, but it's two hours later, <laughs> and it's well, like it. Hundred percent. It... Like I get it. That well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I think that like, I think as much as I hate flashback and as much as I hate like pandering to like your audience, mm-hmm. like I think a little more explanation makes that a lot more powerful. Yeah, I agree. As opposed to just kind of like, man, well that just happened. I agree. I mean, like I. I... I mean, I think if you're a savvy viewer, which you are, I mean, like, you get it. But if you're trying to, like, kind of build that character, flesh it out just a little bit more, I think uh, a little bit more backstory there or a little bit more conversations that hint at things would be appropriate. Um, Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think um, out of all those supporting characters, too, I've always loved Ben Foster. Um, I love Ben Foster since that character he played in, like, when I saw him, like, move from that, like, art student in Six Feet Under, um, and then move to the roles that he took on, like, in years after, like, it's like, um, it's kind of like what Pattison is doing right now to me, in a lot of ways, like, taking, like, you know, kind of like a, you know, kind of getting typecast a little bit as one thing and just like taking on every damn role that he can change his body and his appearance and style. Uh, I think he's a brilliant um, uh, character actor that probably doesn't get enough work, honestly. And um, that, that role was like the right hand um, where he's like a fucking mad dog. Who's like so loyal to its master like to the point where it's like he stops at nothing and like it, it's 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 such a good classic like build up to that ending where it's like he's there like it's like you understand all the character motivations to, to a large degree you know I mean like but it's like that ending where it's like you know almost like master and pupil like the the master has changed the way that he wants to do things the pupil is still going based off of like the master's like you know original intent um it's it's such like just like a tragic ending um and, and so and in a lot of ways it's like what good is the mad dog if the master can't control it you know right I mean? right um like, 
they're only it's only he's only as useful as long as he's like doing what um you know what crow wants him to do and then it, it's it's interesting because it's like there's a nobility to crow you know it kind of reminds me of um uh the bad guys in the proposition you know do you remember mm-hmm. those um yep. where there's a nobility and sure a certain level of like civilized class like starkly juxtaposed against somebody that's an absolute cold-blooded murderer mm-hmm. and has no qualms with like taking a life to further his own ends yeah yeah so do you, do you remember what was on your modern westerns list it was a proposition it was yep. true grit it yeah. was um bone tomahawk right unforgiven unforgiven right uh, was it like, the magnificent seven remake no we haven't talked about that. Mm, that's good. I, I only watched them the past year. So, what was the what was the fifth movie? I, I can't remember. No, I I I I didn't look up. Um, I, mean, I was just asking if you can remember off the top of your head because, um, but um, I, I was just wondering because I was thinking about that. I would say out of all those movies, oh, it's Tombstone. Duh. Oh, Tombstone, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I would say out of those movies that um probably in terms of what I like out of Westerns, and I'm not a huge Western fan, but it's like what I like out of Westerns, I think the proposition is probably my favorite out of those. Yeah, it's a great movie. And, but I want to say that this might, like the experience of watching this, I was really into this movie and I was surprised how 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 much I was into it. And um, I want to say this might be my favorite modern Western that I've watched. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I I think that if if we if we redo the modern western list, because I you, I think we talked about this movie during that podcast. And I think you asked me about it. Um, mm-hmm. It had been a really long time since I'd seen it at that point. Yeah, I think this probably replaces Unforgiven on that list. Hmm. Um, Interesting. I still love all four of those other movies. Like I think the I don't know, I think True Grit is amazing. Like I love the look of it. Um, I think the proposition is one of the more brilliant, like stark revenge movies. And like seriously, Guy Pierce is just amazing in that movie. Sure. Um, to me, Bone Tomahawk is my favorite movie on that on that mm-hmm. list because I just I love fucking Bone Tomahawk, and I'm always gonna have a soft spot for um, Tombstone. Yeah, um, I think those are some great, great performances in that yeah. movie. But yeah, yeah. it's. So it actually speaks to why I love Western so much, not to like completely derail this podcast, but I love the fact that you can like Westerns can contain like multitudes of ideas and be about so many different things. And I think people dismiss them a lot of times because it feels like, oh, it's just like, you know, dusty men on the dusty trails with like cowboy hats and six shooters, but there's so much like philosophy and poetry and human pathos that can exist like in the world of a western because it's basically a blank canvas that a good like creator can make about anything sure and everything in a lot of ways and all set against like the stark and i I keep using the word stark like all set against the like almost unforgiving backdrop of like the desert in most sense you know yeah, I, I, 
I, I think the the good westerns are some of the highest storytelling that you can get. It's just there are so many westerns that I watched when I was a kid that are just so kind of white hat, black hat, kind of dull, boring, you know, nothing interesting going on. And honestly, I, I'm not like I'm not a fan of John Wayne and those type of westerns most of the time. There's a couple of good ones. Don't get me wrong. Like there's some that are really good. But it's like overall, I'm not a fan of those kind of things. Um, I don't like things like Rio Bravo or El Dorado. <laughs> and um much like um much like Bo Catlett, I can't tell the difference between the two of them. Um but I but 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 when when westerns are when westerns are good, like you know, uh the good and the bad and the ugly and once upon a time in the West and um you know, things like the proposition to me that like advanced the genre in so many ways. And I love Bone Tomahawk too, even though it like takes that like kind of gross body horror, like, you know, bend to it and stuff like that. I, I love that movie. Right. Um, and I like, yeah. Unfor- I look, I like Unforgiven. I, I, we talked to Christ for 15 minutes, I think, probably in that podcast about that movie. Um, one of our more popular episodes, honestly. And um, we, but it's like I find it I, I I like the movie and I think Hackman and, and again is like a revelation with Hackman when I watch that, like just how good he is. But it's more interesting to me as like a artifact and like as like a, this like turn in time in the Western to some degree than it is a great movie. Like it, it's a good movie. I, I I know people like put number one on modern Western lists all the time, but it's like it's a good movie um but it's 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 i don't think it's a great movie but i think it's i think it's a fascinating movie um like um to, to discuss um in terms of the western genre and and i don't know there's just something that like look i'm a sucker for dad shit too like because i'm yeah. you know i'm yeah. you know broken um but it's like you know so um so i'm a sucker for that kind of shit too um but like just the idea of like Russell Crowe's character picking up bail so that they can run, you know, leading him to what could be his own death, like, is like a moment where it's like the, the, like you said, it's like that, that kind of like pathos and that feeling that you can get like out of like a story like this is, is just amazing to me. I, yeah. And I, I just love this movie. I I thought it was really, really good. I mean, I really do. Um, okay, that's enough about Westerns. Um, there's, dude, there's never enough about Westerns. <laughs> All right. Um, you know that I want to retire to like the West slash Southwest at some point. I did not know that. No. Like, I really like my dream in life is to live like on the, the, the cusp of the desert where I can see like mountains and mesas and like Arizona or something. Arizona, New Mexico, Mexico, Nevada, even stuff like Colorado, Oklahoma, like, man, like that, the idea of like that open, 
Because it still is like an almost like an unexplored expanse, you know what I mean? Uh, it freaks me out. Just think about know, it. like I, the flatness of all of it freaks me out. God, I love it. Like the idea of it is just um it's it's like amazing. especially like the barren, barren flatness. It's like there's a lot of flatness in where we live to some degree, right? Like, you know, like, yeah, but it's um but it, but it's filled with it's yeah. it's filled with things and it's filled with fields and it's filled with farms and like you know, I mean I don't know. I just like Texas, like all that. I, I wish that my politics were more. I wish my politics were more in line. I don't wish that, but if my politics were more in line and I like country music, like man, I'd be gone. You know, I'd go live out there. Uh, hey, hey, hey! Things things will not change until like there's a diaspora, right? I mean, like um, people gotta move to like places and like make people like confront things they don't want to confront. So. Motherfucker, I ain't diaspora in nothing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna stay here and just watch <laughs> shit on TV and pretend. I can see pictures of the desert like well enough from my kitchen table. Um, all right. So number three number on your three. list is, and now we're just in the '90s and we're stuck there for three movies. Um, so number three on your list is 1998's Out of Sight, directed by Steven Soderbergh, it stars George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez, Bing Rhames, Don Cheadle, Dennis Farina, Albert Brooks, and Michael Keaton in a small cameo role. Um, it is a 93% from critics and a 74% from audiences. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about the movie and um, why you have it on the list? Yeah, so again, not to belabor what is inherently like a kind of complex plot when you get down to it. Um, Clooney plays a career bank robber um, who's been in jail three times um, for robbing banks, but is has been estimated to have robbed 200 banks over the course mm-hmm. of his career. Um, sort of like machinates this complex jailbreak um, where Bing Rames, who's his long-term partner, comes to pick him up. Um, but at the same time, Jennifer Lopez is not really tough as nails, kind of like tough but untested and definitely underappreciated uh, U.S. Marshals there. Um, she gets taken prisoner by Rames and uh, um, Clooney, um, who Clooney and her share this intimate car ride locked in the trunk of the getaway vehicle, actually, which is her car, um, where they sort of develop like conflicting, like intimate feelings for each other. Um, so at that point, once she gets away, um, fuck, what is that actor's name? I just, the guy that plays, uh, Bing Rains? No, 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 uh, the idiot. Oh, Steve Zong. Um, yeah, Steve's on. Yeah. Um, the movie kind of splits at that point to show like her sort of leading her life, um, where she's kind of plagued with like obsessive thoughts about Clooney's character, and Clooney sort of doing the same thing on the other side of the wall, and their trajectory to come back together in this um, planned heist that ultimately involves robbing um, Albert Brooks. Um, who's a millionaire, like investment banker, or like mm-hmm. um, some sort of like venture capitalist um, of five million dollars in diamonds? Um, Don Cheadle, who's a ex boxer during criminal, gets roped in, um, and his gang, um, along with Zahn and uh, Reigns and Clooney, uh, culminates in a 
really well executed like cat and mouse um sequence inside the mansion of uh brooks um which ends up in the death of um uh, Cheadle and his gang and Clooney sort of like giving himself up um through the end of the movie where you can see that she's kind of like subtly arranging for him to escape from prison so possibly they could be together um super over oversimplification but I think that there's um the way the story's told there's a lot of subtle like plot points that sort of like overlap and build on top of each other uh, to build the overall like fabric of this movie, I guess. Um, not to sound too much like Martin Weir. Um, <laughs> I, I, we'll just see I, how many get, get shorty references we can layer into the rest of this podcast. No, there's at least one. <laughs> All right. Um, I loved this movie when I saw it. Yeah. And thought it was one of my favorite movies of that year. Um, Loved Lopez in it, loved Clooney in it. I think that their on-screen romantic chemistry is almost unparalleled in like modern film. Like I can't think of like for me, maybe Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette in mm -hmm. True Romance mm -hmm. um is a close like parallel to this. Um it's hard because like there's not a lot of really great romances in like modern modern genre right. film. Sure. Um but like this is like absolutely amazing. Um the way that really like Clooney at his like sort of like middle aged best, middle aged best at this point. I guess <laughs> bless you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no. It's not Ian. Um, that sort of like gruff hangdog, but still charming bedroom eye, like really kind of the combination of um, like Sinatra and I don't even know, like maybe like a like young Martin Sheen kind of is the way that he sort of carries himself. It, is, I mean, like, is there any doubt after this of why he cast him as Danny Ocean? a couple oh, years right. later no, you know I mean, and just like the absolute brilliance of that whole like like he's a crooner but he's also this criminal it's just it's it's an it, amazing it, look it, for Clooney it's the perfect combination of his original acting style which I always like was always that way like him staring at the floor until he looked up at you and what he eventually became right you know, it's the heartthrob. It's the heartthrob with the piercing eyes looking up at you, like, you know, after smirking while he stared at his feet, mixed with, you know, the kind of things you got in all those movies that he did afterwards. Like Yeah, not to not not to wax like too poetic about this, but there's maybe my favorite scene in this entire movie is when Lopez is at this um hotel bar in mm. Detroit, like overlooking the city. And these three kind of like, not necessarily like assholes, but these three semi-drunk, like overconfident salesmen are coming up and trying to hit on her. And Clooney just comes up and like sits down in his tailored suit with his white shirt. And it's just like everything else in that entire scene melts away. And it's just two people yes. like absolutely in perfect connection with each other. And it, it for being 
you know, uh, whatever a fictional movie, like it feels so real to like watch that interaction. Yes. It's definitely, in my in my opinion, the best scene in the movie. So I agree. Here's my complaints about this movie, and it, it's not even complaints. It's just watching it in 2021. This is what I see. That's hard to unsee. So Soderbergh is on like he does the the quick like statico cuts way too mm-hmm. much, where it's like you can tell that he's either filmed one scene and edited it to seem like multiple cuts, or filmed multiple takes of the same scene and it's just like quickly cutting between the best portions of each of those takes. But it's so fucking like nineteen ninety five, and it just feels very. Um, Weird to say something from the mid-90s is antiquated, but it feels like really antiquated now. Like, that's just not the way people film movies anymore. Um, And I feel like it's... Maybe it's just him as a director, um, which is entirely possible, because I'm not not the biggest Steven Soderbergh fan. Um, I like him okay, but, like, enough of his stuff I find to be... um, I don't know, just kind of grading. Right. Um, in particular, I can see that. Like a really yeah, good Sure. Even like Aaron Brockovich. Like, it's just. Right. I, I, I feel like he becomes too in love with his own cleverness in what he's doing behind the camera and how he's editing the movie and looping in like soundtrack and stuff as opposed to just letting a scene play out. Like, writing. Right. He's got it. I mean, this is. We, we've talked about this now a number of times over the past few weeks, but look at how, and we're going to talk about it over the next three movies too, or the next two movies after this. Like, look how phenomenal this fucking cast is. Yeah. This is, yeah. I mean, Mr. Majestic is the outlier on this list because you have four movies that just are. Well, here here's the people that I didn't mention, right? Was Steve Zahn, right? Um, yep. Louis Guzman, Isaiah Washington, Nancy Allen, Catherine Keener, Viola Davis, Paul Cadrone, um, like, and Samuel L. Jackson also has an uncredited right. role along with Michael Keaton. It's like it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So the the fact that David Keaton to reprise his Jackie Brown role, yeah, to just basically be like an absolute like scumbag, <laughs> but yes. like not even not even a scumbag, just like. He's a scumbag because you know backstory, but not because I mean he's the same guy. He's just right. like this right. yeah. absolutely earnest, like completely self unaware and selfish. Like like almost like like yeah. Jock, who's right. like, like yep. and what's the line? Do you do you have a shirt that says undercover? Like it's such a good line. <laughs> he's wearing a t shirt that says FBI. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's fucking, fucking brilliant. Uh-huh. And delivered like with absolute like perfect timing by um one of the more underrated I think comedic character actors um of the past like twenty years in uh, Dennis Farina but yeah. yeah like every beat of this movie from an acting standpoint is perfect it's just again there's like little things that he does that feel very much and I, I don't know if this is going to make any sense but it's like I'm watching a Cheryl Crow video sometimes mm. it's how I feel about that movie like. Uh, let me get some overexposed, like washed out, you know, blurry edge visuals with like this slow burn slide guitar sax fucking soundtrack and some quick cuts to show somebody in like 
internal turmoil and I think that the performances all are good enough where you didn't need to do that shit. Like I think that again it's like masturbation for its own sake. You know what I mean? Like and I guess that's what masturbation is, but you know, it's it's something you didn't need to do. Like the movie stands on its own without like those extra gymnastics or whatever. Right. But and that's those are very minor quibbles because it is absolutely like I I think an essential like viewing in terms of modern noir. Yeah. Um and on par with like some of the greatest like on screen couples ever. Um and it's crazy because Lopez is so controlled and on point in this movie where she's able to show vulnerability and toughness and mm-hmm uncertainty and like all these like conflicting emotions and she does it so well and it's like why can't she why isn't she like one of the better actresses of our generation <laughs> sure and instead she's making fucking like made in manhattan or julie mm-hmm. or you know what i mean like yeah bad agent has to be yeah um, or just bad decisions on her own part like, maybe maybe so. maybe yeah, yeah it's really 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 great movie really enjoyable um, yeah, I I don't think this is a word that I've like ever used in life. Um, certainly not on the podcast, and I will never probably use again on the podcast. But it's like because like I don't like things like it's like when movies have sex scenes and stuff like that. It's like I understand what sex is. Like you know, like I don't need to like see the sex scene in order to like understand. And like Soderbergh has like enough like instinct that you don't need to see much you know um at all in this and it's like and to me and this it makes it it makes that relationship even more like sensual that he has the restraint to not show you too much um and it actually makes it like you know yeah more sensual sexier like that like you just see like little glimpses of the beginnings of it and then you see the aftermath where they have to deal with the repercussions which is the core of what that relationship is like and that's the brilliant part about it is because the the majority the the vast majority of that scene is spent with the two of them playfully undressing for each other Mm -hmm. And just sort of being like goofy and like letting go of any kind of, you know, whatever right. grasp of reality they have where mm-hmm. one of them is a marshal and one of them is a like wanted bank robber and just they're just two people. And it's just really well. And, 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 and I mean, like, look, nobody's been like, you know, a marshal and a bank robber before. Right. Like the average person, like, you know, and had this circumstance, but everybody's had this circumstance in their life where it's like well not everybody but a lot of people have had the circumstance in their life where it's like there's this other person that you're attracted to you don't even know why it's probably not the best idea in the world but there's just something there and i think this movie like like nails that aspect of things so perfectly maybe even more so than the crime part of it like, agree. Yeah. like, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm I'm agreeing with you. I think that's right. Yeah, I, and I, and I think that's the core of the story. And yeah, I mean, I think Clooney is charming. He's like a throwback to a different time in this movie. Um, I think Lopez is the best performance I've ever seen her give. Um, and it's a really interesting character too because, um, 
Leonard, I don't know if you know this, like Leonard um, created Karen Sisko because he saw a marshal on courthouse steps on the news, like a like a, a an attractive like female marshal, like basically with a shotgun on her hip, like um like protecting like a prisoner, um and like basically developed this character of of Karen Sisko and um uh Carla Gugino like plays it in that like short lived television series. Right, right. I forgot about that. Um, and then reprises the role, like, in Justified later on um, to, like, keep with, like, these shared universes that people try to create to some degree with Elmore Leonard. Um, and, but, um, no, she, like, and, and look, she does a fine job with that role. Like, it makes perfect sense. Like, it, it's great. But, uh, uh, yeah, Lopez is really damn good in this role. Um, it's, like... And I think Farina, that character, but having the father, like, you know, and of course, the adaptation from the novel, but it's like having that father character allows her to show that vulnerability at times um, while being, yeah, tough as nails, like, you know, Marshall and stuff like that. Um, I also think that scene in the beginning, like near the beginning with the escape where they're in the um, trunk together is also this kind of just brilliant. Yeah, it's true brilliant scene um where it's like acted by both of them of like it's obvious like there's like already like some sort of instantaneous connection like between the two of them um and it's 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 a very elmore leonard trope of like the idea that like this thing happens whatever it is and like there's something that somebody says and it gets brought back up later by the person and it's like you recognize that that's the moment that person like became infatuated. Um, it's a very Elmore Leonard trope, um, but also I think a trope that's very true to life is that there's always that moment where somebody says something or does something, and it's like, and that's the moment. And um, whether it gets brought up again or not, and, um, but yeah, I think this is. Um, I haven't seen this since like '99. I think I, I didn't watch it in the theater. I watched it on video and. Um, it's the first time I watched it since. I always liked it, but um, yeah, I still really enjoyed it. But I was really struck this time by how good Clooney and Lopez and that relationship yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, that was the thing that um, when when we were first talking about this list, and I gave you like my five movies, yeah. I really thought this would have been number five, honestly, because that's how I kind of remembered it. But um, yeah, 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 um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and actually, it's number four, and I fucked it up for Frank because um, I I didn't change Fine. the uh. <laughs> <laughs> he texted me early this morning. Frank always texts me ahead of time his list order, and I always guess it ahead of time. And I was off on um, three ten to Yuma and out of sight. So, and then I forgot to change it, and I just realized that like while we were talking about out of sight, <laughs> it's cool. It, it it worked out better anyway because then honestly, like that was my like once I started thinking about it, that was really the order it needed to go. And so I guess you guessed it right. You just didn't. I didn't guess it right. So <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um out Herod Herod. Um <clears throat> all right. Number two on your list is 1995's Get Shorty is directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. Stars John Travolta, Gene Hackman, Delroy Lindo, Renee Russo, Danny DeVito, Dennis Farina, James Gandolfini, David Tamer, John Kreese, Bette Midler, and I'm still leaving people off that list. It has an 88% from critics uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, a 70% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about the movie and um, 
Vice number two on the list. Um, so what I would argue, one of the top 20 movies of the 1990s, um, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. Um, the basic premise is that um, Travolta is Chili Palmer, who's a um, Shylock, Lone Shark, whatever, uh, based out of Miami. Um, he works for a Don from New York named Momo. Um, runs afoul of a uh, similar, like, lackey, um, Jimmy Cap. Is that right? That's the name of the, uh, um, Jimmy Cap is the mobster that runs yeah, the Bones, Miami. Yeah, that Ray Bones worker. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Cap. so Travolta punches Ray Bones in the face because Bones steals his jacket and then shoots him across the forehead, like breaking his nose and scarring his forehead. So runs a foul of him. Um, Momo then dies. So Jimmy Cap gains all of Momo's assets, which include Chili Palmer and his uh, his Shylock book, um, his book of Big or whatever. Um, so it turns out there is this, you find out there's um, this dry cleaner um, who's supposedly died in this tragic plane crash, um, but who they think is still alive. So Chili Palmer heads west to find him. Um, is eventually led to LA where he gets wrapped up with Gene Hackman's Harry Zinn character. Um, and Hackman's implied on again, off again, like Paramore and, um, Renee Russo's, uh, Karen Flores. Um, Chili decides that he's kind of done with being a mobster and wants to get into movies because he's always loved movies. Um, which is actually maybe the thing I love the most about his character is just his exuberance at film and like the films that he loves. Um, a whole lot of shit happens, um, but it turns out that Zim owes money to these very minor mobsters who are also uh, a limo rental service owners um, in Bo Catlett and shit. What is his partner's name? Uh, Bo. Oh, the um. Oh shit. Um. Why? Damn. Anyway, so Bo and um his Weasley partner. Uh, who have loaned Harry two hundred thousand yeah. dollars to make um, is it like Ronnie? Freaks? Ronnie, Ronnie, right? Ronnie, like Freaks Three or something like that. Um, yes. but Harry actually has the script um from a long term collaborator who had died called Mister Lovejoy, uh, that he seems to feel Martin Weir, played by Devito, who's like the preeminent actor in Hollywood, is interested in. So all of these things come together, um, with sort of. Chili kind of slowly controlling like the machinations of everything to get what he wants and um, basically everybody conspiring to fuck it up like around him. Um, in the end, um, Bo makes his play to kind of like get Chili out of the way and take the money that um, the dry cleaner like has owed to the mob. Uh, while see. There's so much that happens in this movie that I think it's almost impossible to give like a real. Well, here, here's what I real quick. Here's what I find fascinating, Frank, as you're describing this is like you're describing it and like trying to give like a synopsis, but it's like there's so many little details that even in your mind like stand out that are probably not particularly important, but they're so fucking memorable, like. 
that you that you're referencing things like free, like like they're in fact that you remember about freaks like you know um right. sir lovejoy and all these other things it's like they're so damn memorable that it's like you can't help yourself um yeah. and whole plot lines and characters like that midler's sure um widow of the guy that mr lovejoy that's trying to seduce harry while still kind of fucking mm-hmm. out of like getting the script and Chili's in with our, with uh, Martin Weir, the Danny DeVito character, because he used to sort of protect Danny DeVito's current paramour, who's a rock star, because he was the only guy at Momo's that didn't try and fuck her. I mean, there's like, right. <laughs> like every scene of this movie has something in it that both propels the individual scene forward and informs like the rest of the movie. Yes. So I. When you first said seventy percent from audiences, I was like, "Man, like, how is that possible?" Mm-hmm. Like this movie is so fucking good, but I guess I get it because yep, you really have to care about watching this movie to yeah. really understand everything that's happening in this yeah. Movie. N- number number one, I I summarized the audience because it was so low. Plot is too cluttered and hard to follow. Yeah. Is my summary. Yep. But the thing is, is like every single thing. Number one, everything ties up. Yes. And everything brilliantly wraps into the other things that are around it. Mm-hmm. Where if you're paying attention throughout the whole movie, it's just this amazing, like, yes, whole cloth tapestry of just these weird little individual scenes that make this amazing, like, single narrative. I mean, you know, you got like Gandolfini in an early role, well, now early, but like Pre Soprano's role is Bear, who's the muscle-bound enforcer for Bo and Ronnie, who's the next stuntman. And again, like, it's Travolta's... And a very good single father. Right. Yeah, very, very devoted single father. Um, I, I, I think the way that, like, I described it to you the other night is, like, watching this is like watching a grown-up Danny Zuko in the way that Travolta carries himself in this. Where there's still this, like, bravado but like youthful enthusiasm mixed with this kind of like early onset world weariness that he's really trying to like push off of himself so he can be a different person um because he doesn't want to be like the hardened gangster he doesn't want to like collect money for somebody else anymore he wants to be in movies and make money for himself like doing the thing that he loves and just the interactions with the other characters and the way that everybody plays off each other and you know, I mean, you listed that laundry list of fucking um, people that are in this movie that are just small scenes, small roles, but all very amazing. Yeah. And, like, so many memorable scenes. Like, friggin', oh, my God. They say the fucking smog is the reason you have such beautiful fucking sunset. Ray, Bo- Ray Bones is right. one of the greatest supporting villains of all time. Fuck you, fuckball. <laughs> hey, that and that's I know you how you feel about Kaitel, but Kai, that Kaitel cameo is oh, yeah, hilarious. Because it's the perfect use for Harvey Kaitel. <laughs> which right. is 30 seconds and miming someone else. That's right, fine. Right. Um You're not gonna say that next week, but okay. What is next week? Next top five next not next top five prime films of the seventies. It's a good performance, man. Yeah, not as good as fingers, <laughs> but uh, 
any motherfucking way. Um, it was good in that. Fingers. Right. So, god damn it. Yeah, I, I love Get Shorty. I think Get Shorty is... Get Shorty used to be my litmus test for other human beings as to whether or not I wanted to be friends with those people. Mm. I, t- I think I told you, like, I took, like, three women on dates to see this movie. What? I, that day, I don't think you ever told me this. Tell me this. Yeah. Story. Um, Did anyone pass? Rebecca liked it, so I guess mm. she sort of passed. Okay. Um, it was the same thing with uh, fucking Boogie Nights and Rebecca. Mm. Like, I was like, oh, she likes Boogie Nights. Like, she's the one. So. Mm-hmm. And she did. And people versus all your flints. So I guess like pornography is the anyway. Um yeah, like I would always want to see how people reacted to it. Because to yeah. me it was like like I fell in love with this movie the the first time I saw it, and then saw it multiple times in the theater. Um and back then that was just like a thing that like we would do is my friends and I would always see movies multiple times. Um but I've probably seen Get Shorty 10, 12 times in my life and have never not watched it in its entirety and have never not enjoyed it. Right. Um it's just I think if you can call something like I don't even know what genre this is, like it's a crime comedy. Modern noir comedy, I guess. Like, modern comedy noir. But it's like a noir parody, almost. Sure. That's why uh, That's why I just call it... I, I think I would just call it crime comedy. I mean, yeah. Oh. To me, that's Dragnet. And, like, this is a better movie than Dragnet. No offense Oh, to sure, 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 sure. No, absolutely. Look, the... the the only reason I ever wanted to do this Elmore Leonard adaptation list, like, because I don't think, I think we developed this after we did talk about Jackie Brown the first time around. Um, we, we started talking about this, and then we realized, that's what happened, is we realized, like, oh, we just talked about Jackie Brown, like, a couple months ago. Um, and how do you not do that? Like, but... Like, this movie is, like, pivotal for me, like, in so many different ways. Like, I I watch this movie yearly, um, and sometimes multiple times a year as, like, some... It's one of my comfort movies. Um, I have comfort TV shows, like, that have developed over the years. I have comfort movies, and this is, like, one of my comfort movies. Um, where I just watch it over and over. I don't even, I can't even count how many times I've seen this movie. Um, my wife and I watched it this time around because she hadn't seen it for since the 90s at some point. I had never seen it all the way through. Um, like my mom and I watched it a few Christmas Eves ago when she was over here, like, um, because we had watched it. I had her watch it, like, you know back in the 90s at some point um and we watched it again and it's like um so in some i think to some degree i think i do the same thing as you um like it's like i see how people react to get shorty but um it's funny but it's it's my favorite crime comedy of all time like as how i classify it um i laugh still to this day at stuff like laugh out loud the things like um 
I think that the characterization of these characters inside of a comedy is actually still really complex. And um, I love the soundtrack to this movie. Uh, John Lurie does like the original composition, like, you know, that people that know movies like know him from Down by Law or what? what's the other one that he that Strangers, Strangers in Paradise, is that right? Stranger Than Paradise? Is that, yeah, Stranger Than Paradise, yeah. Um, um, I like Down by Law, actually, but um, Stranger Than Paradise is like, okay. Um, but um, Lori does like the original composition, but there's like, um, who else? Like, I know like more, there's like a morphine song in it and like Booker T and the MGs mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like, um, but I love the soundtrack to this thing. Like, it's it's so good. It fits like with that like hip, like, that's like mock hip in some ways. And that's what I like love about this movie is that like, it knows what it is and it knows what it's doing. Like, at every turn and um, every single minor character I love in this movie, the thing that like I always come back to as much as I love Ray Bones <laughs> as like this chicken shit heel low level mobster, um, and he has so many quotables and stuff like that. Um, I fucking love Delroy Lindo in this movie. Yeah, I, he's amazing. Absolutely love him. Like he's so just like. He's so earnest in his desire to like want to be involved in movies. And like he's so just cool looking. Like the fucking suits that he wears, like the way he carries himself, like fucking Delroy Lindo is so good in this. Um, and it's like he's this like perfect foil to me for um the Chili Palmer character. And like my like I have so many favorite scenes in this, but like probably my favorite scene in this entire movie is when Chili goes by Harry Zim's office and run like and he realizes that fucking Bo Catlett is broken in to Harry Zim's office to read the Mr. Lovejoy script and they have that conversation with each other about like how like you know what what does he think about the script and chili's like fucking kayfabe in him like acting like he's read it um and it's such a good scene and it's like it sets up the entirety of the movie with this interaction that has like this like very small but like you know not addressed racial component to it where they're talking about who could be cast um and like uh Bo suggests that it's like Morgan Freeman would be good and Chili says oh but he's a colored guy and and he's like well, well what does that matter like it needs to be done with some style like um and it's like you get the sense that like as much as Chili is the protagonist like Chili has his own faults you know even if it's 95 I I knew Chili had his own faults from like even that and you know, you you quoted the other night, like um, when we were talking. Like, is that uh, what is it? Like, what was the line about the punctuation? Oh, um, so Bo says, "I can write one of these things. All you gotta do is take your ideas and get them together and put them down on paper, and then you hire somebody else to fill in all the commas and fix the spelling." And I'll tell you something: I've read screenplays 
where I know there were wrong words spelled wrong, and there weren't even any commas in it. So I don't even think you need anybody for that. Right. And you get to the end, you write fade out, and you're done. <laughs> right, right. And Chili has, oh my God, what a brilliant line that sets up the rest of the movie. And he's like, and and Chili says, that's it. And Bo says, that's it. And he's like, and what the fuck do I what need, do you, I need for? you for? Right, it's so good. Oh my God. And he says, because I'm offering my services on this one, man. And he says, well, if I ever need a limo ride, I'll give you a call. It is like this just complete, utter dismissal of this guy in what fucking 30 syllables. Yeah. Like, and and it sets up that divide of like these like of of Bo Catlett hating this guy so much and sets up the rest of the movie and it's almost brilliant because I think it happens like basically like 25 to 30 minutes into like this you know hour and 40 minute movie um it's like almost perfectly crafted from a scripting standpoint too if you're into like screenplays and stuff like that um yeah I I love the Delroy Lindo character I love all the performances it's and Ray Bones. Fucking Ray Bones. Um, yeah, fucking Ray Barboni. <laughs> I'm Ray Barboni from Miami. <laughs> and my... Who am my, I? Who are you? I'm the guy that's telling you how it is. Oh, my God. Because uh, you you mentioned that the other night. It has to be, like, one of your favorite... You said it was one of your favorite things is, like, yeah, Harry so, Cullen. Again, like, Harry's, like... Harry's trying to pretend that he's Chili Palmer. Because that's just what he does. He yes. apes the things that he sees. And so he calls Ray Bones and tries to like get big with him. Like he tries to break bad. But Bones is just amused because he's like, what the fuck is this? Like, I, I don't know this dude. And Harry like hangs up the phone and Gene Hackman just nails it. Because he kind of stares at the phone and then he sort of looks around like he's almost like waking up from a daydream. And then just reaches up and gently like rubs his hand on his bald head, like into his like receding hairline. Like, it's just kind of like, what did I do? And it's, yeah, so, it's so perfectly executed. It is, and 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 this is the thing with ha- again. This is another Hackman movie now. Like so, it's like it's. I think he's one behind your your dude, but um, always will be. <laughs> so, but this is Hackman in a comedy role. Right, and it's like Hackman nails it, like nails it, and it's probably my second favorite scene in that movie is when Ray Bones comes to the comes to visit Harry's Zim, and Harry is like trying to like be like chilly and fucks with the blinds to put sun in his face, but ends up putting them down, and then finally, like after like trying to sell him on investing in the movies, tells him like you know. Ray, look at me. <laughs> look at you. <laughs> this is exactly what I needed right now. A little bit of exercise. Said Ray he, beats the shit out of him. Yeah, as he beats the shit out of him. Right. Ray beats the shit out of him. And then he has his fucking foot on Harry's face. It's like, don't you puke on my shoes, Harry. That's after Ronnie me. comes in and he shoots yes. Ronnie. Yes. Oh, you must you, you you must be one of those quick draw artists. Mm-hmm. Your gun tucked all far down in your waist like that. Oh my god, this is fucking it's so good. It, 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 good yes, um, it's so much it's, fun, so enjoyable. Yes, and and it has that 
it, and it's weird as we're getting ready to go talk about the first movie to me is that it has a it has the hitness that Elmore Leonard has in his novels. This movie, sure, yep, agree. But it has the comedic hitness to it, and it's the thing that's missing from Be Cool. Like Be Cool is not a great sequel as a book, and it's an, a terrible sequel as a movie. Exactly. But um. But it's like it has that comedic hipness to all of it. Um, like scenes where, like, you know, where you know Chili is kayfabing everything, where he's putting on an act, and like when he like he's getting into character, right? Like Chili is the dude in like the fucking boxer shorts and the t-shirt getting up and sleeping with Karen and marking out over the fact that he thinks it's fucking he, he hears the TV and it's El Dorado. Like that's who that dude is. And he puts on an act all the other time. So it's like when he has to walk up those steps in the restaurant, the one, the time where he throws bear down the steps, yeah. it's like, you see him shift his face and his, and his body language so that he can do that fucking Saturday night live strut, like up the steps, like moving his shoulders up and down and the camera moves with him. It's like, there's a hipness to the entire thing, but it's a knowing hipness. And it's so fucking brilliant. Like I that what Sonnenfeld was able to accomplish, like yeah. with this movie. Um, but um, but there's also a like as we move into and look, number one on the list here, it's gonna be this one of the few times we talk about a movie twice, is number one on the list here is Jackie Brown. Um from 97 directed by tarantino stars pam greer robert forster samuel jackson de niro bridget fonda michael keaton um 87 85 percent um but it's like tarantino takes that hipness in this movie um and does it in this kind of like more realistic way even though there's comedy in it, it's it's much more realistic, dire consequences way, I think, and still has the same coolness factor to all right. of it that Get Shorty has, but Get Shorty's doing in this comedic way, um, where Jackie Brown's doing in this like much more like heist noir way. Yep, agreed. So, um. I don't know how you want to do this. Like we've talked about this movie before. I don't know if you need to give a recap necessarily, <laughs> considering we've talked about this before. If you want to, that's fine. Um, or I don't know if you just want to talk about this movie. Jackie Brown. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just mean, do you want to give a recap or not, Frank? Considering. Oh, uh, I mean, I feel like we talked about it a lot during the Tarantino. We did um, there, and we t- and it was on your top five movies on the '90s list. This is yeah, the third time technically we talked about. Um, so just brief recap, you know, it's a it's a heist movie involving um sort of like a mid level drug runner, gun runner, um in California trying to move his money from Mexico up to the United States through a series of mules. One of whom is Jackie Brown, who's this um, aging stewardess uh, who flies for, what's it called? Um, anyway, it goes from like Punta Cana to, um, it's not LA. Where, where are they flying? Maybe it's LA. Anyway, um, 
I mean, we've talked about Jackie Brown on you know, times. Um, so let me say what, what I found amazing about Jackie Brown this time in Washington. Because I think that we knew when we talked about this list, like no matter what, this movie had to be on this sure. list. And there's been plenty of times where we like where like I've left movies off because we talked about them previously. Right. Um, but I don't think you can leave like it just would be an irrelevant list if this movie wasn't on. Yeah. Um I I don't know that it can be overstated like how much Tarantino just gets the way that a movie is supposed to feel when you watch and understands like every every bit of and it, it's a shame that he's got those three movies in the middle of his you know eight or like middle end that just kind of weigh things down because like the set design and the costuming and like the hair and makeup and everything about you watch Jackie Brown and you feel simultaneously like you're watching a movie set in the 70s and you're watching a movie set in what at the time was the modern age. Yeah. You know, because there's there's car alarms and there's beepers and there's, um, you know, all the things that like were modern in 1997. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> like you, when you go out there, you're going to hit the button and it's going to go, do, do, do. And fucking um, De Niro, uh, you, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna know when you hear, it. and he goes out and he does it. You always, I know, you do fucking stoned ass De Niro. I don't know, like the performances are so fucking. It really is Tarantino's, I think, greatest strength. Like as much as I love him as a director. I think that as a director of actors, like yeah. his Tarantino's thing that he yeah. just consistently like blows me away. And again, like even the movies I hate, like Inglorious Bastards and Hateful Eight and Jagged, which I don't hate, but I'm not a big fan of. He still is pulling like these fucking career making performances out of actors. Sure. And he finds people that it's almost like he recognizes, I don't want to say the diamond in the because like that's almost insulting to a lot of really good actors. But it's like Tarantino's a guy that can watch Kurt Russell in big trouble or right, right. whatever and say, you know what? Like yeah. I'm gonna pull this exact performance out yeah. of this guy. <clears throat> and it's perfect. Like it's exactly yeah. and, and, and and that's what I think it is, is he has such a deep knowledge of film that he knows what actors are capable of and writes often writes characters for certain actors knowing what he can get out of them. And that's the thing, like who in 1995 was looking at Robert Forster and thinking like sure, sure. This is a guy that needs a revival. I mean, I guess I guess I knew Forster from like the Malik stuff, maybe. <clears throat> um, but I didn't really know Robert Forster. I mean, he was just like, whatever. And then his performance in this movie is just so restrained and sort of sad, but also really cool. And it's like, 
Man, it's just so good. It, it's it, it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I, we've talked about this movie a lot, but every single time I watch this movie, I'm so impressed. And I I don't know what the order is. I really don't anymore. But it's in my top three Tarantino films of all time. And in terms of the one that I can keep re-watching, it could be this one. That doesn't mean it's the best in my mind. It just means it's the one that I think I could watch over and over again. Um, yeah. And I, and I think a lot of it, yes, does come down to performances. Um, like... Again, this like, you know, for this crime writer, you know, this Western writer, this love story, like this, that like is bubbling under the surface of this movie between a character like Jackie Brown and Max Cherry is so powerful. Um, and and the way, again, like I was watching this time, I was thinking like the way that like Tarantino decides to tell the story and how it's like he gets Leonard to some degree. It's almost like, you know, an out of sight, like when we, I was saying about like, you know, them being in the trunk and there's this one thing that's recalled. It's like you don't find out until later that Max Cherry's decide to leave the bail bond business until basically the exact moment that he saw Jackie. Right. And it's like, and it's like all the music in this movie, largely, unless it's like a, unless it's a scene that's supposed to be cool, like it's a, it's part of the heist. A lot of it is ambient music, right? It's like being played in a car or something along those lines. But that scene where he sees Jackie for the first time is not. It's it's an explanation of Max Cherry's quick infatuation with seeing Jackie for the first time. Um, and it's the, I think it's the only time in the movie that happens is that like, basically it's a, it's music being used to show a character's feeling because he is so stoic. He is so like emotionless yeah. on the surface and, um, and it works perfectly like in this movie to show that. And like, and, and the fact that this love story, and I was thinking about this too, about this love story in, in this thing, is that it ends in this ambiguous way where Max ends up at the end walking away, like after she leaves into his office and crosses his arms and puts his, one of his hands up to his face. And I was always thinking like my whole life I've thought like about this movie it's like this tragic thing, like where it's like, you know, he's accepted that she's leaving and that they won't be together. But I realized, like, that's my own shit that I'm putting on it. Like, it could be that he runs off to the airport. Like, he's thinking because it's like he might run off to the airport after. Like, agreed. Yeah. I mean, they, they want to leave it open ended enough where it's more about like you, I think. Yeah, maybe not deciding because I don't think Tarantino cares right, right. about what you think, but yeah. it's at least like leaving it to you, um, you know, to kind of like come to that conclusion on your own and yeah, 
and I realized I didn't, I never called that before. That is like basically, it's like it is kind of a choose your own adventure at the end, like you know, and like you get kind of decide maybe what happens after that. Um, but like all oh, the damn performance in this is so good. And I just saw an ter- uh, interview with Tarantino recently where he meant he said that De Niro is the best actor that he's ever seen in his entire life that he's worked with, right? Yep. Um, and we don't talk a lot about De Niro on this podcast. I can only think of a, a few movies that we've actually discussed with De Niro's. Um, but like, I watched this movie with De Niro's performance, knowing what is typical of De Niro. And it's like De Niro is just like transforms himself in this movie. In a weird, in the weirdest way, because it's like, the exact opposite of what you would ever expect from Robert De Niro to be, which is this, but it's not even because it's like yeah. you can see the man that was there turning into this like almost like disillusioned pothead, but that still has this overriding loyalty yeah. to um to his friend, and you know to the point where like you know after he fucks um. Melody. Fonda's yeah. male character immediately like dimes himself out like hey, right that's what right. I want you know this happened and that she was trying to get me to like turn on you yeah ah uh, that's just Mel being Mel but it's like uh-huh. I don't know like this like the one guy that was loyal yeah to, um fuck I can't remember Samuel's name Ordell yeah Ordell um I don't know I so. The little things that I notice in this movie, because I, I've I've seen this movie a number of times too. I'd I'd say at least like probably like ten in my life. But it's like little things that I, I keep picking up little things that I notice, and one of them is like just the, and look, it's just mean my mind not working correctly. Some of them, and some of them is just me not noticing things. But like, um, the last couple times I watched this, it's probably been on my iPad, like rather than than my TV. And like I noticed this time that um oh damn it what's her name Simone um the the one that is the uh the singer that like does like the kind of right yeah you know um the striptease yeah like in impressions of like different performers and stuff like um I I noticed this time that like in the background as I was watching her dance that like she has like like four boxes stacked like on top of each other of the same thing and that she like it's obvious that it's like basically like hot merchandise that like she's going to like sell or something like that and like right. it just is this little sign that she's a con artist that she's a, like she's this low level thief but that plays in later into the story when she runs off with Wardell's like $10,000 like, so it's this little thing, but it's, like, it's brilliant because, like, Lewis is sitting there, like, captivated by her performance, and that's what, she, like, the, like you're taking Lewis's viewpoint of focusing on her and her dancing and, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, like, in the background, it's, like, there's this idea that she's, like, a low-level con artist um, herself. And it's, like, I noticed that. I noticed, like, little things, like... um after Jackie and Ordell meet at that bar that's near like the place where she lives, mm-hmm. that that's where like Ordell takes Lewis later that night because like he's so he likes the place so much he takes Lewis there 
like later that night to have like their discussion about like that's where the whole Mel thing comes up and all that kind of stuff. And it's right. like, and he's still sitting there drinking a screwdriver, like you know. And um, it's like there's all these little things I notice, like you know, every time I watch it, that is like so well thought out, like in terms of like these little tiny character traits or all that kind of stuff and it's like it's a movie i think that's worth watching over and over again to to see these things um you shot her in the face i told her to stop talking you couldn't have just hit her uh, oh my god and, and seriously i come back I, think, on it, I probably could have just hit her but at the time I just <laughs> to shoot her. and that's the thing is like where it's like the the funny and get shorty is is funny right like it's this right. kind of like thing you laugh out loud almost like you know um or chuckle at least it's 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 guttural it's verbal where it's like the the the, the funniness in jackie brown usually is not like it's i i can never pronounce the word like a but g-u-f-f-a-w or whatever like is that is that how it's spelled like you know like guffaw yeah it's like that that's the reaction to the comedy in Jackie Brown. Like, um, is is like you you laugh at things, but it's like it's never you like you laugh out loud. Usually, it's more of a thing where it's like there's something because it's so embedded inside the seriousness of it, right? Like you know of of what's actually happening. It's like um, it's like the Chris Tucker scene. It's like. <laughs> Yeah, the Beaumont. Yeah, like, like what? <laughs> I mean, what a hilarious fucking scene! Like when you realize that Ordell is just conning this fucking dude, and that's all he does—the entire movie. He's always conning yeah. people, you know. And it's like, but like that fucking shot, that damn shot of when he gets him to go into the trunk, and right. then he just drives around into that empty parking lot. Right. With fucking strawberry letter twenty three like blaring until it doesn't blare anymore because he's far enough away, and then the camera just pans over to the left into this empty like fucking dirt lot under construction, and you start hearing it again, and the engine turns off, <laughs> and you just hear Chris Tucker's voice go like motherfucker, <laughs> and just <laughs> gunshots, and then Ordell getting back in the car, and then you hear that slight, like, you know, reprisal of, like, Strawberry Letter 23, just, like, you know, as he drives off again. It's, like, it's such a hilarious thing in such horrific fucking circumstances. Right, yep, exactly. And, uh, it is tonally... Tonally, I think it might be one of Tarantino's greatest achievements, like, in just in terms of a movie. Tonally. Like, um, not in terms of filmmaking, not in terms of acting, not... Tonally, I think he gets... He gets Elmore Leonard more than anybody has ever gotten Elmore Leonard. I think that's right. It's almost a shame that he couldn't film more adaptations of his stuff. Yeah, because he bought the <clears throat> rights to Rum Punch, Kill Shot, and Freaky Deaky all at the same time. Um, I know. And he was initially either planning to do Kill Shot or Freaky Deaky. Um, and have somebody else do um and have somebody else do Rum Punch. And then like he ended up deciding afterwards to do Rum Punch. Um 
And I'm pretty sure Bender, if I remember correctly from the credits, Bender, I think, produced Kill Shot when it was eventually made in the 2000s. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's right. Um, but, but yeah, like, I, I'm glad they did the version of Kill Shot that they did because the original idea for Kill Shot would have been Kaitel doing the Armand Blackbird role and Tarantino doing the Richie role, um, which I don't think would have worked out as well in terms of acting. But um, I'm glad he did this one. Like, yeah, I agree. Like, I'm glad he did this one. Um, yeah. So I'll shut up now. But I, I this this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I think. I mean, it's definitely in my top three Tarantino as well, although. I think it's number three, almost definitely. But do you, you, know. you count Kill Shot all as one movie, right? Or, Kill sorry, Bill? Kill Shot, Kill Bill. Yeah, sorry. Indeed. Yeah. But to me, I mean, if you break it down, then Jackie Brown is my fourth favorite Tarantino movie. Sure. Kill um, Bill is by far, to me, his masterpiece. And on the same way you feel about Jackie Brown, Kill Bill is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. And honestly, it's followed up by Once Upon a Time in America now because I just, or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, because I just absolutely love that movie and everything about it. And how many times have you have you watched that three times now? Uh four. Four. Okay. Because remember, we watched it in the theater, and then I watched it on a date in the theater. Gotcha. Um, and I've watched it two times. Yeah. Okay. I've I've only watched it twice. Um, I've read the novelization. Oh, and nice. How how was <laughs> Look at you reading. I know. <laughs> um, My well, first book this year. I know that's a few books this year. But it's like, you, was the novelization good? Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I mean, it's um, hard to not be good because it's Tarantino adapted himself. I'd sure. assume it's the same thing as reading like Mr. Majestic or whatever, you know, Leonard like adapting his own screenplay. Yeah. Tarantino absolutely knows all the minute beats to the story and he tells it um, pretty effectively. So Yeah. Um yeah, I, I I think we're similar at this point in what our top three Tarantino movies are. Um, I, I think I agree with you on those three. Um, I I think I hold this in certain esteem because, like I it's like I remember reading this novel. I was in. Not to turn this into like you know like uh, like a podcast we did last night, but it's like I remember reading this book Rum Punch, and like I remember the specific circumstance, and it's like when I was reading it, like what class I was in, and it's like I wasn't even in a class; it was service learning in high school, and we didn't have to go to our service learning, and I remember like having to sit in a classroom like and just basically have a free period. And I remember reading this fucking book and I remember reading the fucking scene where Ordell shoots Lewis in that classroom on like this, like, you know, science lab table, right. like, you know, and it's like, like, I have such a deep connection to Leonard that is like, um, from reading those books when I was young, that it's like to see it actually on screen is like something that was like so valuable to me. You know, um, it was like so like just like out of out of this world that it's like I could see 
the exact things that happened in this thing that I read and I imagined, and somebody else was also imagining those things and did it in a specific way. And I, so I think I hold, not only do I hold this in high esteem because of that, but also it's so underrated. It's like you look at people's lists of like, you know, movies and people so underrate this movie. Yeah. And I, I think there's a number of reasons for that and I won't go into them, but it's like, um, I think, cause you understand that Jackie, Jackie Brown, who was Brown was not the last name of that character. I can't remember what it is. Jackie Steele or something like that was the name of the book. Oh, yeah. Um, like, the idea that he cast Pam Greer in this is it is one of the ballsiest moves I think that Tarantino ever made, especially for so early in his career. Yeah. I mean, I love Pam Greer at this point in like my life because of um I mean, whatever, you just knew who Pam Greer was, you know, from like coffee or uh... sure. But what year is that? Mm, For Tarantino, I mean, the, I'm like, just saying, be like contemporaneous when this movie was out. Like I knew who she was, you know. Sure, I'm just saying that it's like to change a white character, a white woman in a book to a black woman. Mm, yeah. In, See, I, in 1997, like you know, and I know that doesn't mean a lot to us, but like just as a statement to make the a black woman the fucking lead in your movie right. and a fucking 60 year old like white dude the love interest right. like i just I, I never even thought of it like that when you said it the other night because i i guess i had no idea that at the time when i saw this that was a white character it's like it it is mm. I, I like I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. But yeah, but I mean, yeah. It, 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 to me, it takes m- massive, massive fucking balls. Yeah. Like, you know, to do that. He's um, also, you know, paying homage to Pam Greer. Absolutely. Sure. But it's like, think about the clout that he had to have to do that. Right. You know, I mean, because we just talked about the Weinsteins last week on that horror episode. And it's like, think about the Weinsteins and think about like what we know about fucking Harvey Weinstein now. But it's like that like Tarantino had the clout to sit there and tell them this is what I'm doing. And they just accepted it. Like right. um crazy. Crazy, Jimmy. But um, yeah, great fucking movie. I mean, you're probably right, I think, when I think about it five years from now and I've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood more. I think you're probably right. Like, you know, that this is third, but um but yeah, like such a good damn movie. Agreed. Yep. Okay. <laughs> this is that's the that okay, just so the audience knows, is the equivalent of when you're in person with Frank and he takes his car keys out of his um pocket and starts jingling them. And then I say, well, Yes. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a good night. Have a good night.